Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, Dara. How are you? I'm good, Anne. How are you? It's good I to see you. want to um, to start um, with your amazing book, Writing Maternity, um, but just asking you, how did you get initially get interested in this topic of the history of maternal anxiety? <laughs> so, um, it goes back so far; it's kind of crazy. Um, when I was, when I was working on my dissertation, um, I was working on paid caregivers. So uh-huh. nannies and wet nurses and governesses and ayahs, cause I was interested not just in, in Britain, but in the British empire. And there was, um, so when I was working on, on Ayas, which is the, what the British called the, the um, Indian nannies, I think it was actually, it's a term that they used for maids generally, including the women who took care of children. Because as in Britain, that was often the same person. Um, but uh, there was this wonderful article by a woman, by a historian named Nupur Chotori. Um, that mentioned a child rearing manual that was published specifically for English women in India. Mm-hmm. And because I was trying to figure out like, who were these women paid to take care of these children and what was going on, there seemed in the fiction that I was looking at, there was all sorts of, of concern about the fact that they were um, raising the children um, and had more contact with them than their parents and that they were racially and culturally other. They were speaking. So these children were growing up speaking Hindi or Urdu rather than English or better than English. And so I was curious about all of that. So I start, so I looked at that. I I tracked down that book. Um, And then it was like, oh, are there others like, like how much of this, how much of what they're saying is like really distinctive to British India in the 1840s and how much of it is like, this is what advice they give. Um, And I think I was also just curious, like this is this totally bizarre thing that I hadn't encountered. Um, So I got interested in just the child rearing advice literature. And then from there, got really interested in the fact that they seemed to be assuming that the mothers they were writing to had no support systems of older women, didn't know what they were doing, were definitely gonna screw up somehow. Like the the way they were projecting the anxiety seemed really palpable and strange to me. And so I think that's what really started it. 
That's, I mean, it, it makes sense. You just, you find the the book, the moment, right? And all of a sudden yeah. it's just sort of like, this opens up a whole world of 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 thought that you haven't sort of- Yeah, to. I mean, it's totally like, I was, I totally fell down a rabbit hole. Like I was yeah. just like, huh, this is kind of cool. I wonder what other things there are like this. Let me like, <laughs> you know, see if I can crack open the library catalog and, and see what I can see. Um, I mean, I think it was partly that I was, um, I was I was doing research in London. I had a I had a research trip when I was working on my dissertation. When I was actually mostly working on letters, and then a few years later, I was back for a couple of weeks, and I was like, "What else is there?" And I was in the British Library, so I could actually find out. Fascinating. And you found hundreds of books, right? That were yeah, I found hundreds of books. I mean, ultimately, then you know, so that was that moment that I found. Um, the big thing I found and then got obsessed by was this, this one, um, this one book or set of books by this, this author named Pi Henry Chavez, um, who I sort of feature. And I was, um, he was just so prolific that I, I started, like, I got curious about, I didn't know I was writing about maternal anxiety at this point. I was just like, yeah. wow, these books are cool. Um, so I got curious about um, changes across the, the 40 years of editions in his books. So, um, and so I was looking at, like I was, I was looking, I initially was looking for moments when he was talking about paid childcare and how to handle paid childcare. And then, and so that was a lot about wet nurses. Then I got really interested in the fact that he was making recommendations for what, um, uh, for artificial food, which is what they called formula. So he had like a recipe and that changed. So I got really curious about some of those kinds of things. And then, you know, years and years later, in order to contextualize him, I was like, what others are there? And yeah, yeah and found hundreds and found this kind of, um, then started tracking it historically. Like, why are there, why am I only starting to find lots of them in the 1830s? Like what's going on that, with that? Yeah. So that was one of my questions is that there's this great chart on the, you know, on page 14 that just shows this, the, the increase in the, I guess the, the numbers of books published, but also new books about child rearing. And I'm just yeah. curious, why at that moment was there this surge of interest yeah in childbearing titles. Can so, you have a, a, yeah, an idea of what, I have what's like, going on? I, I definitely have theories. Um, I mean, it's like a, it's, I mean, part of it is that it's a theory that it was a convergence of like a million different historical factors, right? So um, I think one thing that was really important in it happening at that moment is that you know, with industrialization, so starting like in the mid 18th century and then sort of consolidated or semi-consolidated by the 1820s or 30s, you know, the um, cultural life and particularly family and ideologies of family and understandings of family structure and purpose were changing. Right. And um, I'm persuaded by arguments that one of those changes was um, with the rise of the middle class 
and the ideology of sort of enlightenment individualism and so on, you, you are who you make yourself, right? Which means that the function of the family becomes the transmission of social identity to the next generation, which is less guaranteed or less a given than it was before, right? It has to be enacted and reenacted by each generation. So parenting then becomes this very um, future-oriented task of, I'm going to do things now while you're a child so that when you are an adult, you will make the choices I want you to make, right? You will become the kind of like sober, industrious individual who can inherit the family enterprise and make it grow or, you know, whatever the various sort of gendered versions of that there are. So I think that's one factor, right? Like there was, there was more emphasis on child rearing, partly in a very, um, uh, in a reproductive futurist mode, right? right. Um, is one piece of it. Like, it's like, I have, you know, we have to, the job of a parent is to, is to reproduce and not just physically, but culturally. So that was one piece. Um, uh, with the rise of the middle class, like people are getting wealthier, they're hiring more servants. So there's, you know, there's more sort of child rearing by proxy, which is opening up space, I think, for um, in this context of it's all the more important how you raise your children. There's also this like, and now you have to like have someone else doing the day-to-day -day work. Um, so you have to control the person who's controlling the child's future. Um, and then these are the books I'm looking at most intensely are mostly authored by medical men. And so there's another really significant piece of it that I think is all about the, the professionalization of medicine. Um, so it's sort of status and it's consolidation as a discipline and particularly around pediatrics and, and what we call well baby care. Um, but also, you know, just economically, um, after the Napoleonic Wars, there were all these medical doctors who, who came back to England and needed jobs and needed to be able to develop practices. And um, there, was, there was a real glut of, of physicians and surgeons sort of on the market in that way. And so I, I, I don't know for sure. I speculate that, that some of them were, were turning to publication to supplement their incomes, to advertise themselves. I mean, there are a variety of ways in which that kind of turned to sort of um, print medicine as opposed to embodied medicine. There yeah. would have been incentives to do it at the time. So I have so many questions already that I'm trying to stack, restack them here. But one of the things that struck me as I was reading about those books was that, yes, that precisely that doctors were creating their profession through the work of composing these books. But I haven't read these books, but I'm very curious because, um, well, what I'm, I'm gonna jump ahead. It, that, that one of the things that is in the third chapter, which is a chapter about prob probability and premature death is that, um, that the demographer Robert Wood says that between 1580s and 1940s, 
to 30% of all live born infants were likely to have died before reaching their first birthdays, while between 30 to 35% would have died before reaching their 10th birthdays. So one of the things that's just remarkable about that is the lack of change, the lack of transformation in medicine. People weren't, kids weren't getting better. It was right. Well, and that was even with medical advances, actually, in the late 18th and 19th century, right? Like they're, they're, you know, they, they started inoculating against smallpox, right? right? right. I mean, there are a number of things. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So they were trying to, (laughs) so this gets me back to anxiety in a way, because um, one would imagine as a mother reading one of these books, that one of the things you expect is I'm going to figure out how to take care of my child so that my child doesn't die um, before the age of 10. And that in and of itself seems like it should have been a constant anxiety or, or it, it would have, I imagine it as a constant anxiety, but there's something else going on here that that's generating a different kind of anxiety. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess, um, so in the very late 18th century and early 19th century with industrialization, the size of the, the population expanded in England. So what's interesting to me about the, the infant and child mortality rate staying constant at a moment when the size of the population is expanding um, is that more children are dying, right? Right, okay. Um, and so that's one of the things I'm thinking about is that, is that even if like, we don't experience things in percentages. <laughs> like, right. and so, so the, the fact of, of objective more, I think, makes a difference with this. I think also um, over the course of the 18th century, the, the, the medical profession, you know, took childbirth from the midwives. So rather than being a domain of women's experience and practice, childbirth became a domain of medical expertise and knowledge. Um, and it's clear that that was a really concerted, deliberate effort, um, that was successful over the course of the 18th century. And, um, so there's, there's, and part of it was about, um, saving babies and the idea that if you had a surgeon in attendance rather than a midwife, it was more likely to save the life of the child. Hmm. So there's there's a building association there already between um, medical expertise and knowledge, professional knowledge, and saving children's lives. Um, what part of what part of the probabilistic logic I think of anxiety is, and part of what these books are doing rhetorically is their they're invoking 
the possibility of the kid dying in order to sort of inculcate a kind of dependence on the doctor. So the, the books are sort of promising a guarantee that they can't possibly deliver um, because they can't guarantee that the kid is going to live. They can't guarantee that the kid isn't going to get scarlet fever and die because they can't control the fever and the kid's going to get dehydrated. Like they can't, there are things you couldn't do um, without fever reducers or antibiotics. Right. Um, never mind vaccines. Um, and so I think that um, that's part of it. Like the books are trying to inculcate a kind of dependence and the, the like demographic facts and the sort of emotional experience of living with those demographic facts made it like a really fertile ground yeah. for them to do that. That makes a lot, of, it makes a lot of sense. It also makes a lot of sense sort of because the idea that you start to think of probabilistically means that you're counting, that you're paying attention, that you're documenting or somebody's documenting. And the fact right. that's got to be um, anxiety producing <laughs> in some ways, right? Uh, that's really interesting to me. Um, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, just with like um, Kathleen Woodward's work on, on statistical panic yeah, yeah. is so interesting and important. And I've, I've been thinking about it endlessly, of course, in the last couple of years with the pandemic, right? Like hearing the percentages, living in New York City and hearing about the percentages of people who are sick or in the hospital or have died and track, you know, in the early months, tracking those day by day myself and looking at those charts and the predictions of where we might go. I mean, it's, um, it's overwhelming and, and paralyzing. And you know, I'm looking at those numbers in order to try and find some sort of story or reassurance or something. And of course, you know, they, they can't offer that, particularly in the middle of things. Right. But you never know where you are in the middle of things. Right. Right. That's we're guess... trying to invent the narrative and we don't know where we are in the plot. Right. Right. So. And it's it's the um, the desire to return to normal. Yeah. What's normal? What? Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's fascinating time to be alive. <laughs> I'm glad so far I had COVID a few weeks ago, so I'm just I, like oh, God. Okay. the experience right at this point. Yeah. So, um, all kinds of possible connections here, but one of the things that I want to ask about are the differences, which may not be significant in most cases, but this differences between the expert um, advice manuals um, by physicians. And in contrast to, you mentioned a few key books by women. Um, there's advice to young mothers on the physical education of their children um, by Countess of Montcashel. I love it, just saying that. And the mother's practical guide in the early training of her children by Mrs. J. Bakewell. Can you talk about in what ways those those texts were rhetorically distinctive um, in the in the the vast scheme of of all of these texts? Yeah, um, I mean, I was interested. There are far far fewer by women, yeah. like in the corpus that I that I looked at. Um, that itself felt interesting to me. Um, 
there's a, I would say the, the Countess of Mount Cashel's um, book is a little bit of an outlier in this way, but I would say generally the, the books by women lean more heavily toward the sort of moral and social aspects and less heavily toward the medical and physical aspects. Um, and I think um, Margaret King Moore, the Countess of Mount Cashel, I think part of the reason she's leaning more toward the physical is because she actually um, disguised herself as a man in order to get medical education in Italy at a moment when medical education was not otherwise available to women in the very early 19th century. Um, uh, which, I mean, she's a, she's a trip in and of herself um, in a whole variety of ways. But um, so there's, there's that sort of shift in emphasis. I was really struck by how similar the kind of hierarchical relationship was between author and an invoked reader across um, the gender of that, of that author. Um, in that in, in, it's always like, you know nothing and I know the things that you need. And I mean, that's inherent in the kind of genre or the speech act of advice given, right? You, you can't give advice without inhabiting that role and, and sort of imposing that um, needy role um, needy and interested um, role on your on your interlocutor or on your audience, right? Um, and I think like when when one takes umbrage oneself at receiving advice that you don't feel like you need, it's in, it's entirely because you're feeling like that position projected onto you, and you're like, no, that's not who I am, right? Right. Um, but hmm. um, but the other thing that I thought was really interesting about um, in these the books by women is when they are talking about the, the, the doctors is the, the like this really complicated sort of finessing of the relationship. Like the doctors are like, you have to do what we say. You might think you can get away with not doing what we say, but you actually have to do what we say. And you're useful because you're there every day and you can observe things and tell us what we need to know in order to tell you what to do to cure your child. But you have to do what we say. And the, the women's books, and they're all by women who are at least claiming to have had the experience of motherhood. So that's where their expertise and their position as an authority comes from. Um, but they're all like, it's a much more complicated relationship in, but with the doctor. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes like with, with Moore, who's an aristocrat, and wealthy as well as having some medical training herself. She's just like, yeah, you're actually in charge and you need to make sure you're getting the doctor who's gonna work with you. <laughs> um, but Bakewell is clearly not putting herself in that kind of position. And yet she's still like, there are things you're gonna know because you're there and you know your kid and you have like both day-to-day -day caretaking knowledge mm -hmm. and also you're the kid's mother. So you are going to experience things about a child when they're ill that no one else other than a mother can experience. Um, yeah. And so there's a, there's a kind of authority granted to those maternal readers 
even at the same time, they're, they don't know anything and they desperately need to buy this book and read this book and have it with them all the time in order to know what to do. In fact, I mean, it's really interesting to, to the negotiation of the rhetoric um, and the rhetoric of authority um, going on in these, in these texts. Yeah. Um, uh, there was one more question I had about that, that um, and now I'm not gonna be able to find it. Uh, so let me skip ahead until, and, and perhaps I'll remember. Oh, I know what it was. Um, <laughs> I mean, it must be the case. So I'm just fascinated by this, the obviousness of this, that mothers become anxious because they are reading about these things, right? So it's yeah. the, the, the leap in interest um, is part of the sort of cultural structure that, cre that creates the anxiety and that that's intentional and part of the physicians perhaps, um, you must listen to me. Um, but then there's the break between what the physicians are saying and what the mothers are experiencing and what the mothers know. So it, it, part of what's happening is, I mean, I guess there's already a sense of not knowing, feeling as if you're, as a mother, you're not necessarily an expert, um, but that there must also have been many occasions when they trusted the physicians when the physicians may not have actually had any greater knowledge than the mothers had. Yeah. Um, is that your sense yeah. from reading these texts? Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, I think probably the experience of any individual woman was feeling like she had questions and therefore going to buy the book. Right. Right. Um, but I feel like culturally, the notion that the thing to do when you had a question as a new mother was to buy a book rather than to talk to your mother or sister or aunt or neighbor is itself an interesting thing. And, you know, there was a lot of population movement in the in the early 19th century. So so there may be some um, some demographic truth to the you're all alone, you're all by yourself. But um, it's hard to imagine that there's that much demographic truth <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that all of a sudden all the women were alone. Um, but it also seemed but I also um, I feel as though there's something, there's something, and this is part of why I started looking at the other genres. There's, there's something self-reproducing about this anxiety cycle is so that, right. so that, you know, maybe it was um, this kind of, or I believe that it was this like, you know, um, print culture phenomenon that kind of catalyzed this affective phenomenon and the cultural formation of the anxious mother. But then once that cultural formation is there and the print phenomenon is there, like there's like no way out of it in a sense. And you can see that even like 
in, you know, all the way through, right? All the way through to the present. And you think of like some interventions like Dr. Spock's, like trust yourself, you know more than you think you do. And yet that's the like first line of a book that you still need to buy, right? So um, there are different versions of this. Um, and including the sort of late 19th century sort of, um, another kind of professionalization of motherhood where it got very, very scientific, right? You can, you feed your kid on a schedule and it's this time and this time and formula is better because you know exactly what's going into it. And like all of that regimentation um, that happened, that was another kind of like land grab on the part of the medical profession over motherhood. This was like the early version of that. But I feel like there's this, there's this self-reproducing cycle that, that instead, like, I'm sure parents generally, mothers in particular, worried before the 1820s. Like, it's just like, you know, oh my God, I have this tiny little thing with this neck that I have to support. And like, how do I not break it? Right? Like there's, there are these really, um, uh, how do I understand what this particular cry means? What do I, you know, all of this stuff. And it's just part of what's really interesting to me is that there's this there's this intervention and transformation of the of the resource from personal connection and oral knowledge and practice based experiential knowledge to um, professionalized credential knowledge that is disseminated in print. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and part of what's happening is, I don't even know how to say what comes first because there's so yeah. many things mixed up in this, but, but part of, of social class, of being middle-class, yeah. right? Um, is about being able to buy the book. Yes. <laughs> that everybody else is buying. Yeah. Um, so that you're keeping up with, um, yeah this this line of expertise but at the same time what's devalued is the village right the the yeah. people the people from from all over from multiple classes and you only start drawing expertise from the doctors right it's it's there's a probably an enormous loss of knowledge as well but that doesn't yeah. get it right right because it has to be you have to cement yourself within this particular class through, right. th through, In part through, yeah, the book and through yeah. a particular the rhetorical stance of the doctor, and through the anxiety of the mother who's trying well, to and the anxiety of the mother who is someone who can afford to call in the doctor. Right. right. I mean, so there's there's both having the money to to buy the book. And then there's also, you know, uh, there was no such thing as health insurance at that moment. There's also being right. able to pay the doctor's fees. Um, right. One of the really so <clears throat> in the various sort of um, semi dead end moments of research with this, I was trying to find explicit references to Chavez's books. Um, in 
women's life writing. Like, you know, how what how did people actually read this book was was the question. And I not entirely surprisingly, I couldn't find very many, but <clears throat> one of the really moving ones was um the account, there was a collection of sort of working women's autobiographical testimonies that was collected in the 1920s. And there was one woman who was talking about when she was a young mother in the probably the 1880s, finding his book in so valuable, literally valuable, because it saved her money. Because, because of the information in the book about how to handle various things, um, probably, you know, minor illness type things or recognizing that things weren't actually minor illnesses, she didn't have to call in the doctor. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the books in their, in their prefaces and so on, they're, they're claiming that they're aimed at like a wide audience they're they're not expensive they're not sturdy so but um but still they were you know six shillings rather than one um or much less sixpence or something like they weren't tiny little pamphlets um so it would have been some kind of investment or it would have been something that got passed around in a in a mm-hmm. less wealthy family um, but I was really interested to see that piece of it, like that this this could also be a kind of investment and a kind of proxy for an, mm. a, a doctor uh, of, you know, actual human coming in and seeing your child. Right. And all the movement with industrialization yeah. also contributes to disseminating a different kind of knowledge in a different in a different medium. Yeah, um, that's really fascinating. I want to I want to. Um, I'm watching time a little bit, but I want to jump ahead to the chapter on Godfrey's cordial and an open <laughs> hill, which for me, it just like all of the threads come together in that chapter in a way that's that's just weird and surprising and just, just totally, totally fascinating. Um, so I'm I'm thinking about the connections that you make between maternity and empire and opium, and of course race is in there too, right? Um, so can you talk about how opium brings class and race into rhetorical narratives of maternity? Sure. Um... Yeah, I love the opium stuff so much, just because it's, it's, it's so it's weird and, yeah. um, and disturbing in kind of the, the best possible way, I guess. Um, so, <clears throat> um, so opium sort of, right, so there are these warnings that um, you have to watch your paid caregiver very carefully, because if you don't, um, they'll be slipping the kids some opium to make it sleep. Um, which first of all is like this, this perfect, perfect, like urban legend horror story for parents, because the thing you want, right, the, the, the sleeping child is not a sign of that everything's right with the world. It's actually a sign of danger. Um, so that first of all, feels like a, a fabulously, um, it, yeah, this this crazy 
horrified fantasy, right? The, the very thing that you're hoping for is actually the, your worst nightmare. Um, so in, in British India, it's very specifically a raw opium pill. And so the image is that there's this unrefined substance and the, 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 the Indian servant is going to be like cramming, cramming it into your baby's mouth. And in England, the fear is for these opiate-based patent medicines like Godfrey's cordial. Um, uh, the names themselves are great. Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. The category was often called soothing syrups. Um, Street's infant quietness, which is also another lovely sinister name. Um, and the, the dangers that are invoked are always class-based sort of across those two contexts, right? So it's always a paid caregiver, a servant who is going to be giving this to your child when you are not looking. Um, so that's one of the places where, where it's a kind of um, classed substance. Um, but opium is always racialized in, in the British imagination, in, I would say, in the, in the, the Anglo-American imagination more broadly. And it's, it's a very generically um, orientalized substance. So in the, in the 19th century in Britain, um, the, the opium actually imported to Britain probably mostly came from Turkey, but um, opium after um, the abolition of the slave trade in 1807 became the most, one of the most important cash crops underwriting the wealth of the British empire. And it was specifically able to do that because of forced monocropping in um, India um, at the, um, behest is way too gentle a term, but at the, at, by force by the, by the um, British East India Company. And then um, through the illegal um, opium trade with China, which led to, to wars where Britain was forcing China to allow them to trade opium there. So there's a whole bunch of different sort of geographic places that are differently racialized in the British imagination. So opium is sort of carrying this, like it's the substance that's used by those of a lower class. It comes from these places that are racially different. Um, opium itself is this psychotropic substance. It changes your body, it changes your mind, right? It acts on both. So it's, there's something very powerful, I think about opium um, carrying those associations and actually transforming the bodies of the people who ingest it. Um, so yeah. And in fact, you see this in, um, in one of the warnings in the advice literature, um, in Thomas Bull's maternal management, he's, and it's almost stock phrasing. He's describing what happens to an English child who's addicted to opium by the, um, machinations of its, of its caregiver. And he explicitly, he describes it in great detail and then explicitly says like, yeah, you see, you see this, you see kids looking like this all the time among the poorer classes. So there's this sense that like the, the opium given to this like um, well-fed, cherished, healthy 
middle-class child, the opium itself can actually transform the, that child's body into the body of um, an impoverished child. Hmm. Wow. So there's an effort to sort of, huh? It, it's, it's allowing the paid caregiver into the family space that creates this threat. Yeah. That's, that's about class. It's about class and it's about race and it's about like life, literally, right? Because right. Um, the, the horror stories are that the child dies, right? Mm -hmm. Either the child dies because it has overdosed or in the one fictional account, I find I found I wanted to in ask the you Daisy about that, chain, but, yeah. the um, the middle class child who's been given given Godfrey's cordial actually dies from withdrawal when um, her mother realizes what's going on and stops it because she's horrified by it. Um, and she doesn't know. She needs a doctor to know how to deal with withdrawal, which I'm not sure you can. Yeah, get and but still. Yeah, and even her the the mother's father is a doctor, but like they realize what's going on too late, and so he's the one who delivers the diagnosis. Um, uh, and his his phrase is actually, "This child has been ruined with opium." Um, when he when he realizes what's going on, that that novel is fascinating in its weirdness um, in yeah. all kinds of ways. But one of the things that struck me about um, the story of Flora, right? Who's the highly, highly competent yeah. child who ends up taking care of a family when the mother has died and uh, the older sister has died, right? And she's- She's is disabled. Is disabled, that's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Um, okay, so, so but, but this, this young woman takes care of everything. Like she's the manager yeah. that we, that, yeah. you know, that we've talked about. And yet when her management is managing her husband's rise into social stature, um, she pays for childcare um, and then, the, and the child becomes addicted. But one of the strangest, um, the moral of the story, right? Is that, she was an, ad, an inadequate mother because of her lack of anxiety, right? Yeah. She was so confident yeah. in what she was doing that she, um, that the absence of anxiety turned out to be the danger itself. Yeah. Um, that, I just thought that was such a punishing moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that, and yeah. what, I mean, the thing is you have to worry more. Yeah. Well, and I think that, um, I mean, Charlotte Young, the author of The Daisy Chain, that novel, is a very punishing author. <laughs> like, that's what she, like, she creates these fascinating, um, often very queer, often very, like, and then she, mm -hmm. like, you know, forcibly makes them conform in really violent, cruel ways. Um, but, uh, but part of what, um, 
I think part of what I'm trying to, to name or to figure out with Flora and so in that chapter, but also the chapter um, on wet nurses and governesses is, is thinking about sort of the way anxiety is a kind of species of attention or a motivator for paying attention, right? So, so Flora's lack of anxiety is because she's not paying attention to mm -hmm. what's going on. And the idea is that this, this heightened awareness that is anxiety, the constant like what ifing that is the sort of um, mode of anxiety is what's actually gonna make sure that everything's okay. Because if you've, if you've delegated it and then stopped paying attention, you don't know that um, the task is going to be done or is going to be done correctly. Um, and the like, Young actually sort of traces that really kind of beautifully with Flora and her daughter because she drops all of these. It's like a murder mystery, or the way I ended up reading it was like a murder mystery because like um, there are all these hints in the chapters. So Flora um, gives birth to a daughter. Um, her husband is running for parliament. She actually, Flora actually writes her husband's parliamentary stump speech while she's like still in bed recovering from childbirth. Everyone's like, shouldn't you be resting? She's like, no, no, I'm fine. Um, then at, when the baby is, when Lavinia is three months old, um, the family moves to London so he can take up his, his parliamentary seat. Um, and Flora weans the baby so she can be a like politician's wife and doing the philanthropic work and the entertaining and going to the things that are actually her job as part of being a politician's wife. Um, and so very soon after that, we start getting references to the child being quiet or pale or I think maybe one time that, oh yeah, the father is kind of worried because the baby seems listless. Let's take her out to the country earlier. And Flora's like, no, no, it'll be fine. We're gonna take, we're gonna go later. So there are these moments when other family members are commenting on things that are clues that something is wrong. And then in retrospect, once you know what, um, the effects of opium on an infant are, <laughs> you can see that these are all symptoms that get named as, as the effects of opium. But, um, but it's clear just that something's off and that Flora is like the person who was like, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Like, no, we don't need to get the kid into the country early. No, like, yeah, yeah, isn't it great? She's quiet. Like, and so she's really, there's a sense in which she's paying less attention. Right. Right. And <clears throat> the, the, there's a phrase that you use um, elsewhere. I think it's elsewhere in the in the in the book about um, future orientation. That mm -hmm. that you're always you're always managing the child and managing the homes, thinking about what's what's going to be happening a decade from now or two yeah. decades from now, and that somehow. Um, that future orientation is part of what gets lost for Flora because it's all invested in her husband. Yeah. And herself, I guess, 
right? Yeah, because she's, I mean, her status is going to rise with his. Right. Um, yeah. That's, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating story. The whole, that whole chapter is, is um, it's just, it's fantastic. There's just so many other things in there. Have I, have I left anything, any key details out that, that you want to talk about with regard to that chapter? Um, I guess the other, I mean, the, the, the piece that we didn't talk about much is the, the sort of India piece in yes. that chapter, which is another, um, so this, this autobiography by this evangelical children's writer, Mary Martha Sherwood, that I actually talk about in, in all of the chapters. Um, right, Sherwood. And she, so she, um, I mean, deeply racist English woman living in India in the 18 teens. Um, and the author of, of one of the short stories that then became a nursery staple and so shaped generations upon generations of young British people's attitudes toward India and toward the prospect of, of and the, their understanding of the Indian empire. Um, but she, so I think that was one of her writings for one of the first places that I saw this. So she like, here's the baby cry out. It's in another room. She goes in, she's absolutely certain that the, the nurse had, had been cramming or trying to cram an opium pill into the child's mouth. Um, the doctor comes and like confirms her suspicions. They fire that um, nurse and replace her with another Indian nurse. And so part of what I was so interested in that um, apart from the very explicit kind of racialization of that danger um, that Sherwood does, which for her is a kind of um, a kind of synecdoche for all of the dangers that Indian po that India poses and Indian people pose to English infants. Um, but part of what I was so interested in that moment, and it gets replicated in with Flora, is that the solution to the prospect of your child being poisoned by the paired paid caregiver is not to take care of the child yourself. The solution right. is to hire someone, a new person to take care of the child. Um, and to like manage more anxiously, I guess. Um, right. but reading that stuff from like the 21st century vantage point, it just seems like, well, how can you trust anybody after that? Right. Anytime the baby is sleeping quietly, aren't you like totally freaking out? Um, and so I'm, I'm just really interested that the, that the solution is this kind of like, and so then we replaced her. Right. No, no, no. I mean, it's totally fascinating, but it's sort of as if culturally what's what can't be seen is the necessity of having the servant because the servant yeah. marks the class yeah. right so and so but these are things that can't be can't be seen right, right. um and or are yeah. so are so visible at the time that we can't see them now Right. Right. Because right. they didn't need to be said. Um, and I feel like um, 
I feel like it's also important to like name that that there's some like there's something materially and deeply true about that need for paid childcare. Like the housework was never ending and backbreaking before, you know, yeah. running hot water and so on. Um, it was even more so in a house with, with babies because of diapers. Um, and so there, there are, there are ways in which like the, the need for childcare is, is physically urgent in a way that I feel like we lose sight of. Like, yeah. I feel like in the 20th and 21st century kind of mommy wars, it, there's this, it's like the woman's career against the, the being a, a stay-at-home mother. And it's very different in the 19th century, which is yeah. not to say that there weren't complicated questions about um, how much attention do you pay to your children and, and judgment around she's not paying enough and I'm paying more and, and that kind of thing. But there's, there's a kind of baseline um, need for staff. Um, right that is, you know, not just as a, and it's a marker of middle-class status, but it's a marker of middle-class status because you're able to not spend like all of your time cooking and cleaning, like literally all of your time. And even then probably not having a terribly clean home. Right. Right. No, I'm, yeah. it was a very, very different experience. I mean, the home, the life of the home was a very, very different experience yeah. all, all around unless you were yeah. very, very wealthy, I, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, so, so I want to, um, there's a couple of things that I might, well, I'm thinking about, but one of the things that we have not talked about that I think is really interesting is, is that, that Raymond Williams and the idea of structures of feeling are there's this touchstone as you move, as you move through the book. And I just, I'm, um, for the historians out there, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess Marxism and literature may have passed over the 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 boundaries and be sh and is shared. But I'm, I want to know if you want to talk a little bit about about that concept as something that's that's that just runs throughout your 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 study. Yeah, I mean the um, the concept of structures of feeling and the the related notion that there are like dominant forms and um, residual forms that of which we're still experiencing traces from the past and then emergent forms that are like it, his um, cultural formations in solution, I think is how he phrases it. Right. Um, that are like yet to come and we can't even really recognize them because we're in our moment, like all of that um, has been really important for my thinking about, about culture writ large. Um, but especially, um, print culture and the, the role of genre actually in shaping and responding to and carrying forward culture. I mean, I got, so, um, I was working on this book for like on some level over 20 years and in another way like I took 
eight or 10 years off in the middle because I was um, developing a different, you know, field and writing a completely different book. Um, and, and I can mention taking care of two young children. Yes. And also having babies of my own. And um, uh, so, um, but one of the reasons that I set down this project and moved into the writing about writing programs at small colleges was because I'd gotten to this impasse where I couldn't understand how like the child rearing advice literature and the fiction like mattered, like did anything in the world. Like it felt like I kept, I want, I was wanting to make these these claims about relationship or impact. And I didn't, I didn't know how, I felt like I couldn't find the tools. And, um, uh, and both William's work around structures of feeling, which I actually came across in trying to understand the persistent culture of small liberal arts colleges for that book. And mm. then also rhetorical genre theory gave me ways to sort of get out of that impasse because they gave me ways to think about cultural forms as pulling individual subject positions into particular kinds of relationships. And Mm -hmm. And then like, so then like, that's not to say I as an individual are always in that relationship. It's just that if that is one of the subject positions in which that I inhabit, then the, my experience in that subject position is shaped by all of these different texts and forms and narratives and expectations that have constructed it over time. Right. And, and, and so, and then the central experience that you, that you're writing about is the experience of maternal anxiety in the way yeah. that it is structured in so many different ways, yeah. um, including genre. Yeah. So but, part of, yeah. right. So part of like the, the advice literature is the centerpiece of the book, because I feel partly because it was the like 1820s explosion that I think changed things historically, but also because there's something very clear about the rhetorical relationship, its stages between, and therefore the maternal subject position it's sort of invoking. And part of what I'm trying to see is how it's not that that particular subject position is just getting like taken up by other genres and moved forward, but also how child rearing literature in creating that particular um, anxious maternal reader was drawing on some of these associations from these other contexts. Right. And from these other, like, you know, the, the narratives about child death in fiction at the time and the ways in which that was getting used um, as a species of sort of suspense and, or a facet of suspense and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Um, I want to, uh, thinking about maternal anxiety and also paternal anxiety, I, I want to sort of move into the future just to say, I, I feel as if we're all still reading these books. When I was oh, yeah. having children 
It was what to expect when you're expecting, which everybody I knew called what to worry about when you're expecting, (laughs) right? And um, so, so to what extent are we still caught up in these cultural formations of anxiety? Um, and are we doing any better? Or are we just looping our way through the centuries? Oh, I think we're totally just looping our way through the centuries. Really? Honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think, and like, um, you know, I think there's, you know, I think, um, Media ecologies are really important to all of this, right? So like I'm I'm in the early 19th century, I'm looking at a print ecology around all of this. And then of course, like with um, the turn from the 20th to the 21st century, in addition to the continued pervasiveness of advice books, you start getting mommy blogs, right? So you're getting, mm-hmm. you know, a, a new iteration of the life writing that is like speaking the anxiety and speaking the sense of overwhelm that the books inculcate that is a part of that anxiety. Um, And then, and so I, you know, so it's, I don't, I don't actually think that that created something new in all of it, but I do think it's, it's, it's perpetuating it in a kind of slightly different key. Um, And, you know, the, the genre I would have loved to have looked at in writing maternity that I couldn't quite, I mean, it would have taken me another decade probably, was um, was uh, domestic magazines. Right. And looking at the sort of interplay between articles and letters to the editor and the different sort of subgenres of articles in those magazines. And I feel like, um, that's something that's very much a part of the, the, the media ecology now and the web ecology around, around motherhood is that there are, there are, you know, all sorts of different short pieces, some of which are advice, some of which are reacting to advice, some of which are stories, some of, like, it just feels like there's a lot um, of new parts, but I feel like the, the message is still consistently that if you're not aware of what's going on where you are not, so that kind of spatial component. And if right. you not are not like understanding that every decision you make right now is going to determine everything about your child in the future, <laughs> then you're not doing it right. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> uh, I mean, and so, I think, you know, the, the yeah. paternal anxiety pieces, I feel like actually um, because good mothering was defined by worry, I feel like good parenting has come to be defined by worry. So there's the, um, I open the preface with this um, excerpt from um, uh, um, Bunmi Latitan's um, a post for a Facebook page launching a book, right? And where she's like embodying the kind of, this is how I suppose, I'm suppose i supposed to feel. Um, these are the expectations on middle-class mothers right now. And it actually got, it went viral, but it part went viral as a de-gendered slide in someone's TED talk or something. Um, and I think it's that it's not that mothers are worrying less now that fathers are more involved. It's that It's that fathers have taken on that that work parenting that, you know, good parents worry. It's not just the good mothers right. worry. It's good parents worry now. Right. I, I, I wish that there were a way out of the cycle. I, and I do recognize to some extent that the class 
element of it is yeah. is particular um, yeah. and troubling. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's the class and and race part of it, right? I mean, there are. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like it's important to sort of distinguish this kind of anxiety or this subject position for anxiety from the very urgent, pressing, inescapable worries, right? The, the, yeah. the deep, deep worry and anxiety that shapes the experience of being a Black parent in the U.S. today. Right. 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 So I feel like there's, there's, it's, that's a different species of emotion, I think. No, I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. And I, I mean, that's an interesting question to ask about where are the differences in, um, in diverse constructions yeah. of, of, of parenting in the U S yeah. or, or the UK, you know, yeah. that's, that's a really interesting question for someone to sort of someone to take up. I'm not insisting you do it. I'm just no, saying. no. It would be great if someone else would <laughs> would, would work on that. <laughs> so what are what is next for you? Are you going to continue? So, um, I'm. I got really curious about um, 19th century women's rights rhetoric, uh-huh. and particularly race in 19th century women's rights rhetoric. So um, hmm. I think, yeah, I don't quite know. I got curious about, um, so I started working on um, the regulation of sex work and the, the 19th century, the women's rights campaign to repeal laws regulating sex work. That was one of the first really big successful political campaigns um, Mm. for women's rights in the UK was getting these laws repealed. Um, They were called the Contagious Diseases Acts and they were basically they, um, they blamed sex workers for sexually transmitted disease Mm -hmm. and um, legislated that um, any woman suspected of being a sex worker could be brought into a police station and um, physically inspected for um, evidence of syphilis or gonorrhea. And if she was found to have symptoms, she would be remanded to um, a hospital for treatment for three months. Um, never mind that like the, they didn't have successful treatments at the time and they didn't even really know what they were looking for. Um, but there was no provision for um, inspecting the bodies of men just inspecting the bodies of women. So this um, Mm. sexual double standard enshrined in law became a a really, um, uh, an important sort of feminist cause in the the 1870s, um, alongside higher education and opening professions and suffrage actually, and interestingly. Um, So I was looking at that for a variety of reasons. And, the one, the leader of that campaign, um, Josephine Butler, um, uses an analogy between the position of sex workers and the position of enslaved Africans over and over again. Uh. Um, and it's very explicitly, it's not slavery in a general or metaphoric 
sense. It's very explicitly the position of, of enslaved Africans in the US. And to such an extent that um, she, they, they start calling this campaign to repeal um, the Contagious Diseases Acts, um, the new abolitionism. Fascinating. And she came from a very big anti-slavery family. Her father was very involved in the anti-slavery efforts in the, the successful anti-slavery efforts in the 1820s and 30s. And it's, she's in some of her, her works, she's got um, epigraphs to every chapter and like 90% of the epigraphs are from John, Leaf, John Greenleaf Whittier. So it's like, she's really drawing on that tradition. Um, and when I came across, I mean, I was looking at this stuff for other reasons. When I came across this, I had this very 21st century reaction of like, oh, that's messed up. Like, mm -hmm. oh, like, and, um, and I still think it's messed up. And I also understand what she was trying to do strategically. And I'm kind of trying to untangle that knot. Um, yeah. And it's a bigger <laughs> knot because the analogy between um, white women and slaves was all over like British um, women's rights campaigns for like married women's independent property. And it's it, like, it's in, it's all over John Stuart Mill's The Subjective of Women. It goes back earlier. Like it's, it's so, so that's what's next. That's exciting. That's, I'm, that sounds fantastic. And I'm ready to read more. How's that? <laughs> that sounds great. I'll let you know when there is more. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been thank you such for, a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. It's been You're really welcome. fun. It has been. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online shy.org